The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And we'll explore the meaning, the practice, and the relationship of metta to the whole of our practice and in relationship to the whole of our life. And this will include a number of suttas and stories. And beginning with uh, some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love, we will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which classically is called Abrahma-vihara in Pali, the divine abiding, a divine abiding in English. It's this radiant warmth and openness of metta of unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship. The experience of an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging, isn't fraught with attachment, and not even necessarily with a sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of the mind and the heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences with clarity and kindness. So, beginning with an old story, an ancient story, It's said that the Buddha first <clears throat> taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and <clears throat> seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat, a forest that was adjacent to a village of uh, very strong supporters who had offered to build the 500 monks 500 huts uh, for, uh, for the monks to stay in during this particular rains retreat, and who were also happy to keep the monks 
alms bowls filled during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight meditation, vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest-dwelling devas who lived there, became quite fearful of the monks and felt actually quite put out of their home when they saw that, in fact, the monks weren't just visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and frightening sights and emit some very, very distasteful odors, hoping that, in fact, this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks did become quite terrified. And this broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and disrupted their mindfulness. Some of them even developed a fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale, uh, to which the Buddha responded, My dear monks, go back to exactly the same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest, again saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will offer you a true weapon of protection. And it said it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and the metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks, of course, didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and the metta practice, they went back to that same forest and for a while continued experiencing uh, uh, some fear and some anxiety. While at the same time, they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Soon there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile uh, towards the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect, uh, welcome, and even reverence began to be the deva's experience, along with a sense of being connected, like, like with family. And the inclination arose for them to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from the particular uh, dangers such as uh, tigers and uh, poisonous snakes that might be lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and uh, deepening their 
concentration and open-hearted presence through their practice of metta. It's said that all 500 monks at some point began again practicing samatha and vipassana meditation along with metta as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all became arhans. They all became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless. With a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, and groups of beings, wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the mind, this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, they begin to pale. They're, of course, on one level, quite important. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our mind and heart, in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sunshine that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our mind, warm our whole being And then at some point, radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does this capacity to connect, 
to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this capacity come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness, the experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But the fact is that really such a people are very, very rare. Every single one of us here in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So an example, a very simple, very ordinary example. A few days before this retreat began, and by the way, this experience happens quite often for me, I walked into the uh, Orancho State House post office to pick up my mail. And someone opened the door for me. I had never seen this person before. I didn't know this person. But we looked directly at each other and smiled at each other. And I thanked her. And I felt a really warm connection between us in that moment. And just that. That's unconditional kindness. That's metta. And of course, each one of us have experienced kindness with people we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed in a more overt and stronger way. That unconditional warmth of loving-kindness. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate with our practice. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water, that we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it. We cultivate it. And we give it out. Offering the transmission back again and again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the metta that we give, it's really always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness that's given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support in some way 
their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the three other divine abidings. Karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upeka, equanimity. It's also the capacity of mind and heart that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To both unfold from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China for a few months in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese-written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a symbol for the one that represented a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for Metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the mind, the expansion of the heart. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the texts, it's often spoken of as non ill will, the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in re- relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no 
self-judgment and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in every direction. Here in retreat, how often might we think that maybe the person sitting next to us or the person on the other side of the room, how often might we think that maybe their practice is much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind says that this person isn't practicing nearly as well as me. That felt judgment that inner felt judgment, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement, just look at that person over there, nodding away, restless, moving around. Obviously this isn't metta. We're creating a separation, me, other. The heart and the mind are contracted, And as we know, it's quite uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta. And also to offer metta to the other person in the equation. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe uh, surprising, surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self what we're identified with and attached to either in a positive or in a critical way as our self. Our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A mind, a heart that's filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those that we're close to in our lives or, and those that it's easy to care about or those who might be useful or maybe amusing or pleasing to us. A mind, a heart with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. And those of you that come to the early sit hear me uh, mention this every single morning at the end of our uh, chanting. This immeasurable impartiality, (coughs) this capacity to be able to connect and care for any being, to be able to connect and care for all beings. In some words from Krishnamurti's meditation journal.
Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair. But when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible, and you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As each of you are practicing here in the specific ways that you are, practicing towards cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness. Some of you are also working with the practice of metta, at least to some degree, in relationship to its purifying and its healing aspects. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind and the body and the heart begin to unwind, begin to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian <clears throat> spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, and he uh, taught through dialogue mostly with his students. Someone once asked him a question, what can make me love, was the question. And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and quite important to me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, the heart and mind of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath 
that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who maybe act in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep, universal level, not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. There's no favoring one over the other with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is actually a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe, as Gandhi called it. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, the world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout our human history, up up to and including this very moment, when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been and we could say is, increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings, brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger said this, There are those who set fire to the world, We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, words, and actions, if that's what our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart and mind of metta, the kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways much beyond our own small lives even in ways that we will never, never know. I'd like to spend just a few moments now uh, exploring some of the expectations that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. And I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, some very familiar felt sense And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. 
It's impossible to expect to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced. Or to look for something that maybe we have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving kindness, that we didn't label as unconditional friendship, metta. Metta sometimes can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in always expecting this. And it's limiting. Metta isn't at all sentimental. It has nothing to do with sentimentality. It's not at all romantic. It has nothing to do with feelings, romantic feelings. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't necessarily even always a very juicy feeling. The mind, the heart that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of any aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great strength and power in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently and fearlessly with a mind, a heart that's really free of ill will. So we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen, to be seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. And as I've said in different ways in previous talks, I've found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this quite clearly. Sariputta was one of the uh, Buddha's two chief disciples and he was uh, foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And I'd like to share, share this with you. And in it, you'll uh, hear some familiar uh, uh, teachings uh, in relationship to the um, teachings that the Buddha gave to his son that we explored uh, with the 
uh, talk on the four elements and the guided sit on the four elements. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove in Anattapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon, <clears throat> soon, as the, soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away, the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monks' lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come, for today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha after bowing to him and sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth water, fire, and air, in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. So just a little aside, a somewhat different uh, learning from that sutta. And there was a teaching that was offered, and this is how Sariputta is uh, speaking about it. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learn from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. When people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, yet for all that the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it, even so. Lord, do I dwell, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology, but it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, and yet for all that, 
The water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A man who does not, a monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, so Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have, Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters village with a humble heart. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the venerable Sariputta wrongly and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One in the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense and makes amends and in the future practices restraint. He then, the Buddha then turned to Sariputta saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits in seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha did have a sense of humor. <laughs> and Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord. 
if this revered monk also asks for my pardon, as I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines. It's a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are really absolutely natural human capacities. And we see this in the smallest children. Quite a number of years ago now, I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana as she was sitting in her high chair. And she took one of the pieces from the tray of the high chair and proceeded to stuff it into my mouth (laughs) with a, a great big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and pure expression of the heart of kindness. <clears throat> a few years ago, or a number of years ago now, uh, I was reading a book uh, about and by a 102-year-old black man whose name was George Dawson. George grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read, until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. It's really an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George described how he learned to read the world and survive in it. And so I'd like to um, read just a little bit of this book with you. And the book is called Life is So Good. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together um, about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone, and as George said, doing just fine. And Richard says, you're not really alone. People call and come by, come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. 
In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy with what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take the time to say hello. This can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts, said George. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. And as an example of the stability and beauty of a mind, a heart steeped in kind heart in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue a little bit with our hundred and two year old Bodhisatta George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South, growing up in East Texas. And during the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, uh, he was doing yard work uh, for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf that was for me, was out of the reach of the dogs, for me. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in in a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't really such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch, with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch that I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. 
Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. And as I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. And finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figured you can't hate one, hate someone for what they think and what they do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held onto, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And of course, it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And of course, it's not so easy at times, but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy, which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. And I'd like to share one more story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. This is a, another a true story. This is from um, a book called On the Res. Suan was born on March 15, 1974, on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Suan's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were structured and chaperoned. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were completely out. 
Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject uh, to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky, given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughter in sports. At one time or another, they did them all, cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio with her mother and her sister getting very tired of the sound. (laughs) So for variety, she would shoot layup shots against the gutter and the drain pipes until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voice, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Leed fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside, and then the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. 
Usually the Lady Thorps lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team was waiting in the hallway that, that evening, leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get commodity cheese or welfare cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go in her place, go first in her place. She was so eager that uh, Donnie uh, became suspicious and said, don't embarrass us. And Sue Ann said, I won't, I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball with her teammates running behind. And on the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulder and began doing the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Then Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the, the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym in, at Lead. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And a brief uh, poem by Hafiz. It's called The Sun Never Says. 
Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation and do what comes naturally. And then, after the fact, realize that you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks you how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. And a poem, or a a section of a poem, an excerpt, from a poem by Mary Oliver. The title is uh, To Begin With the Sweetgrass. This is just an excerpt from that. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then, I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean, the ones that thought to rule my heart I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or another. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And in relation to this, some instructions, uh, very clear instructions given to us from the Buddha. And this is a translation of the Metta Sutta, uh, translation uh, from the Pali, from the monks from the Amaravati Monastery in England. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and one who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright 
straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world, into this world of suffering. And closing the talk this evening with a valentine. (laughs) I have a a student uh, who every year sends me a valentine that she and her husband create. And this is uh, one that she sent to me uh, a couple of years ago. At the top of it was a circle, bright red circle, with black lettering in it that said, this is love. And this is the instruction that goes with that little sticker. It was a sticker that you could remove from the uh, valentine. Take this tiny label, stick it on your dining table, stick it on your favorite book, stick it where you always look. Stick it on some brand new shoes. Stick it on the evening news. Stick it on a broken heart. Stick it on a hospice chart. Stick it on a violin. Stick it on your thinnest skin. Stick it on a long lost friend. Stick it on a bill to send. Stick it on your desk or wall. Use it on a conference call. Stick it on a microphone. Feel it when you're all alone. Put it on a mirror, yes. See it when your hair's a mess. Stick it on the Congress floor. Stick it on the White House door. Stick it on the other side. Stick it where it cannot hide. Can you see love everywhere? We hope we can. We hope we dare. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.